This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode is a continuation in our 12-part series on the 12 principles as outlined and written about by Dr. Patrick Harnes. We are on principle five, which is openness. And I have a lot to say about this, maybe because I feel like for me, so much of my own recovery journey from childhood trauma has been about transitioning from being closed to open. And it can still be a struggle for me to make that transition and to open myself up when I feel myself wanting to close down and withdraw and take a step back to instead kind of lean in and open up when appropriate. Sometimes it's appropriate to take a step back. And I also feel like as a therapist, this is one of the most powerful things I also witness for clients when they start to open up, when they start to really get vulnerable and talk about things that maybe they've never spoken, maybe they've never even allowed themselves to think or wonder about. I usually want to see them start to do group work. Usually they maybe are starting group work prior to this, but they're not loving group work. And they're going maybe because they read in a book that it says that group work is an important part of recovery from addiction. Maybe they're just trusting me and I'm telling them that group work is going to be an important part. And so they're reluctantly, but also willingly going to their group. But there comes a point in the group work when clients have to let go and open themselves up and trust that the group will catch them. And when they do that, group work starts to transform. Now, a lot of times at work now, I typically do more advanced groups. So that shift from being closed to beginning to open usually has already happened before I'm seeing them show up in group. But even in the advanced group work, there comes a point when the group starts to really mesh and the whole group is opening up to each other in ways that maybe they didn't even know could happen. That's such a powerful moment in recovery, whatever the recovery you are recovering from. I also feel like this is such an important topic because I feel like as a society here in America, in the United States, we are, I don't know that we were ever really an open system. And if you haven't listened to other podcasts, I get into maybe some of my thinking about that. But I I have a concern because I see us moving into more and more closed systems and we have this closed system against that closed system, whether that's red versus blue, whether that's white versus people of color, whether that's religious versus the nuns that we're starting to see kind of increase in numbers. Whatever that is, we're starting to see closed systems and maybe part of it is a last stance. I, I don't know. That's not what I wanted to get into with this episode. So I won't go too far down that because I do see, I think, a difference in maybe like Gen Z, maybe started in millennials, but definitely is happening in Gen Z 
if you know somebody of that generation and you have a relationship where you can start to talk to them and have them open up about what they want for their world, what concerns they have. I have to say, I'm, I'm not too concerned about the millennials. I'm not too concerned about Gen Z. I see some amazing things happen. And to me, their generations gives me hope in what we've got coming ahead of us. But that's on a tangent. I do have a lot to say about openness, again, because I think it's so powerful and it's so transformational. In the book, A Gentle Path Through the Twelve Principles, Dr. Karn says this, most of us show up at our first 12-step meeting, or you know, if you don't attend 12 steps, maybe think about it as your first therapy session, or maybe think about it um, on your first day of group therapy. So most of us show up at our first meeting with all sorts of trust issues. We trusted people we shouldn't have. We didn't trust people we should have. We didn't tell the truth. We didn't do what we said we'd do. We didn't stay faithful to our partner. We kept secrets. We invaded other people's space. We violated our own value systems. We didn't even know what or whom to trust. In fact, we didn't know how to trust and we certainly didn't trust ourselves. He continues, in order to trust, we first need to belong. Yet most practicing addicts don't feel they belong anywhere, except perhaps with their addictions or with other addicts. Before we began recovery, many of us had little experience of being part of a healthy family, of fitting into a functional community, or of living in a climate of trust. Often, from a very young age, we were denied the opportunity to bond with other people. When I'm working with clients, one of the first things we start to talk about is the importance of attachment. Now, attachment begins or develops as parents respond to their infant's needs in warm, sensitive, and consistent ways. The baby cries, and a parent tries to give them what they need, a feeding, a cuddle, or a diaper change, attention. When the parent responds, the baby learns that they can trust the parent and depend on them for comfort and to feel safe. But bonding and attaching goes beyond feeding or changing diapers or making sure a child is entertained. Even though those things are important, bonding occurs when the parent simply holds the child and the two gaze silently in each other's eyes for minutes at a time. The unblinking gaze is a deep communion, two people being fully present with each other, seeing each other. This experience is vital because it assures the child that they have a place in the universe, that the child deserves to be here on the planet, and that the child matters because the child has the full attention of mom or dad the child knows they're valued. And as a result, the child is much more likely to grow up feeling safe, secure, and confident. Now, for many addicts, they did not have this experience. Karn says, our deep human need to bond was thwarted, and we know it. Now, I would say this isn't only true for addicts, but it can also be true for those who experienced any type of childhood trauma depending on how the people around them responded. 
Karn says, in the depths of our brains, we can feel that we missed out on something. We deeply and often unconsciously crave bonding and intimacy. Yet we also have trouble bonding with other people, often because of insufficient bonding experiences when we were small. Instead, we bond with addiction. Now, let's just go back a little bit to where attachment theory started. So attachment theory in psychology originates with the seminal work of John Bowlby in 1958. In the 1930s, John Bowlby worked as a psychiatrist in a child guidance clinic in London, where he treated many emotionally disturbed children. Bowlby hypothesized that the extreme behaviors infants engage in to avoid separation from a parent or when reconnecting with a physically separated parent, like crying, screaming, and clinging, were evolutionary mechanisms. Bowlby thought these behaviors had possibly been reinforced through natural selection and enhanced the child's chances of survival. These attachment behaviors are instinctive responses to the perceived threat of losing the survival advantages that accompany being cared for and attended to by the primary caregivers. Since the infants who engaged in these behaviors were more likely to survive, the instincts were naturally selected and reinforced over generations. So these behaviors made up what Bowlby termed an attachment behavioral system, the system that guided us in our patterns and habits of forming and maintaining relationships. Research on Bowlby's theories of attachment showed that infants placed in an unfamiliar situation and separated from their parents will generally react in one of three ways upon reunited with the parent. So the first way is a secure attachment. These infants showed distress upon separation, but sought comfort and were easily comforted when the parents returned. The second was an anxious resistant attachment. So a smaller portion of infants experience greater levels of distress and upon reuniting with the parents, seemed both to seek comfort and to attempt to punish the parents for leaving. And then the third was avoidant attachment. So infants in this third category showed no stress or minimal stress upon separation from the parents and either ignored the parents upon reuniting or actively avoided the parents. Now in later years, researchers added a fourth attachment style to this list, the disorganized or disoriented attachment style which refers to children who have no predictable pattern of attachment behaviors. Now, it makes intuitive sense that a child's attachment style is largely a function of the caregiving the child receives in their early years. Those who receive support and love from their caregivers are likely to be secure, while those who experienced inconsistency or negligence from their caregivers are likely to feel more anxiety surrounding their relationships with their parents. Now, attachment theory, though, takes it one step further, applying what we know about attachment in children to relationships we engage in as adults. These relationships, particularly intimate or romantic relationships, are also directly related to our attachment styles as children and the care we received from our primary caregivers. The development of this theory gives us an interesting look into the study of child development. 
So a little bit of a backstory here. Bowlby's interest in child development traces back to his first experiences out of college, in which he volunteered at a school for maladjusted children. Now, according to Bowlby, two children sparked his curiosity and his drive that laid the foundations of attachment theory. There was an isolated and distant teenager who had no stable mother figure in his life and had recently been expelled from his school for stealing. And then there was an anxious seven or eight-year-old boy who followed Bulby wherever he went, earning himself the reputation as Bulby's shadow. Through his work with children, Bulby developed a strong belief in the impact of family experiences on children's emotional and behavioral well-being. Early on in his career, Bulby proposed that psychoanalysts working with children should take a holistic perspective considering children's living environments, their families, and other experiences, in addition to any behaviors that were exhibited by the children themselves. This idea grew into a strategy of helping children by helping their parents. A generally effective strategy, given the importance of the child's relationships with the parents or their caregivers. How the caregivers were doing had a direct impact on how the children were doing. Now, at roughly the same time Bowlby was creating the foundations for his theory on attachment, Mary Ainsworth was finishing her graduate degree and studying security theory, which proposed that children need to develop a secure dependence on their parents before venturing out into unfamiliar situations. In 1950, the two crossed paths when Ainsworth took a position in Bowlby's research unit at the Tavistock Clinic in London. Her initial responsibilities included analyzing records of children's behavior, which inspired her to conduct her own studies on children in their natural settings. Through several papers, numerous research studies, and theories that were discarded, altered, or combined, Bowlby and Ainsworth developed and provided evidence for attachment theory. Theirs was a more rigorous explanation and description of attachment behavior than any others on the topic at the time, including those that had grown out of Freud's work and those that were developed in direct opposition to Freud's ideas. Now, one more person I think who is important and has an impact on psychology that I think it's important to talk about is Eric Erickson. So Eric Erickson's research trajectory was parallel to Bowlby and Ainsworth, but it came from a different perspective. But I think as we talk through this, you'll see how they're intertwined and how they line up with each other. So Erickson's work was based on Freud's original personality theories, and it drew from his idea of the ego. However, Erickson placed more importance on context from culture and society than on Freud's focus on the conflict between the id and the superego. In addition, Eric's stages of development are based on how children socialize and how it affects their sense of self rather than sexual development, which Freud kind of had an obsession with. So Eric Erickson's eight stages of psychosocial development are, the first one happens in infancy, and the psychosocial development stage is trust, versus mistrust. In this stage, infants require a great deal of attention and comfort from their parents, 
leading them to develop their first sense of trust, or in some cases, mistrust. This is really where in the infancy stage, human beings begin to develop this sense of the world as a safe place or the world as an unsafe place. The second psychosocial development stage is early childhood. And the developmental stages are autonomy versus shame and doubt. So depending on the experiences, depending on their environment, toddlers and very young children are beginning to assert their independence. They're developing their unique personalities and they're making tantrums and having some defiance. And this is either accepted and there's some autonomy that begins to develop or there's shame and doubt if it's not accepted and if the child is shamed or punished. Then we have the preschool years. The developmental stage is initiative versus guilt. So children at this stage begin learning about social roles and norms. Their imagination will take off at this point and the defiance and tantrums of the previous stage will likely continue. The way that trusted adults interact with a child will either encourage them to act independently or to develop a sense of guilt about any inappropriate actions. The next stage is the school age and Erickson said, what we're looking at with development here is industry, or in other words, competency versus inferiority. Now at this stage, the child is building important relationships with peers and is likely beginning to feel the pressure of academic performance. Mental health issues may begin at this stage, including depression, anxiety, ADHD, and other problems. So again, remember Erickson is looking at how the children socialize and how their environment impacts them. The fifth stage for Eric Erickson was adolescence. And he said what they're looking at or what the development stage is doing during adolescence is identity versus role confusion. So he says the adolescent is reaching new heights of independence and is beginning to experiment and put together his or her identity. Now, sometimes this changes. If you've had kids, you know, you see that, again, adolescence is a pretty wide range. You know, it can start at 12 at the earliest, 13, and go all the way up to 18. That's a pretty broad range. And there's a lot of differences amongst those age groups. I remember one year taking one of my kids school shopping, you know, it was, they were heading back to school. It's a good time to, you know, buy some clothes. So we'd gone school shopping like a month previous, you know, prior to school starting. And a month later, we're driving together in the car and she tells me like, hey, I need new clothes. And I'm thinking, I just spent money like a month ago, literally on new clothes for you. So I tell her like, well, I, I just bought you a bunch of clothes a month ago. Like, you haven't really grown. Like, why do you need new clothes? And she said, well, a month ago, I thought I was like a skater, but I'm definitely not a skater kind of kid. And yet all my clothes, when I thought I was a skater, I bought all those clothes and I'm not a skater. And so I need more clothes. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to have to like figure this out. Cause like my budget for clothing can't quite keep up with your experimentation with different identities. The sixth stage is young adulthood. 
So some of this, you know, might go into some of those older teen years. But for Eric Erickson, he said that this stage, again, pretty broad, he said it's from 18 to 40, approximately. He said, in young adulthood, we're developing either intimacy or isolation. During this stage, the individual will begin sharing with others more, including people outside of their family or outside of what their friend group has been. If the individual is successful in this stage of development, then they will build satisfying relationships that they feel comfortable in, that they can be committed to and feel safe and nurtured by. If not, they may fear commitment and they will experience isolation, loneliness, and depression. The next stage Erickson calls middle adulthood. So this is approximately ages 40 to 65. And the developmental stages are generativity versus stagnation. So he says in this stage, the individual is likely established in their career, their relationship, and their family. If the individual is not established and contributing to society, they may feel stagnant and unproductive. Now, again, this time period was, you know, the 50s. So again, when you fast forward that, oftentimes in middle adulthood, I find with clients, some of what they originally established in young adulthood years has started to crumble. You know, we're, we're not staying in careers from the time of graduation of high school or college until retirement. Like that's not what's happening anymore. Uh, we're often not even staying in the same relationship that we started out with. So again, in middle adulthood, we may find ourselves losing our career, starting a new career, starting a new relationship, figuring out how to blend families. And so there can be more items that kind of contribute to whether we're feeling this, this acceptance with some generativity, with some newness, with how we're contributing to society, or whether we're feeling stagnant and unproductive or failure. The eighth stage for Eric Erickson is late adulthood. And the developmental stages are about ego integrity versus despair. So he says this is late adulthood, ages 65 and above. And usually, I would say in Eric Erickson's time, it brought about reduced productivity. I don't know that that's the case anymore. Often people are needing to work past retirement ages. Also, they're wanting to work sometimes past retirement ages. They don't want to retire. They don't want to kind of put themselves out to pasture, so to say. So this time period can either be embraced as a reward for your contributions, where you look back at your legacy that you've created and the kind of the path that your life has taken and lessons learned and contributions made. And you can meet that with a sense of acceptance and even some pride or with some guilt or dissatisfaction. Successfully navigating this stage can protect the individual from feeling depressed or hopeless at the end of their life and help the individual cultivate some wisdom. Now, like I said, although it does not map completely onto attachment theory, I think that Erickson's findings are clearly related to the attachment styles and behaviors that Bowlby and Ainsworth were looking at and putting together. 
So just a summation, I know you may not be getting your degrees in psychology, and so you may wonder why I took you on that tangent. And maybe that's only interesting to me, how we develop our ways of thinking and the lenses at which we look at things through. But to summarize and to kind of put your take-home messages together from attachment theory, attachment can be defined as a deep and enduring emotional bond between two people in which each seeks closeness and feels more secure when in the presence of the attachment figure. Attachment behavior in adults towards the child includes responding sensitively and appropriately to the child's needs. Such behavior appears universal across cultures. Another take-home message, attachment theory explains how the parent-child relationship emerges and influences subsequent development. Also, attachments are most likely to form with those who respond accurately to the baby's signals, not the person they spend the most time with. Schaefer and Emerson, later who kind of discovered this, called this sensitive responsiveness, which means a child is more responsive, more attached to the person who's more sensitive to them. Attachment is also characterized by specific behaviors in children, such as seeking proximity to the attachment figure when they're upset or threatened, turning to and turning towards. Now, one of the quotes from John Bowlby that when I first heard it, read it, whatever it was, when I, when I first came across it, that really stuck with me. He said, what cannot be communicated to the mother cannot be communicated to the self. Now, I think it's important to remember that having unmet needs for love and belonging does not necessarily mean that you had a horrible childhood or that your parents were horrible, rotten people. Bulby said, young children who for whatever reason are deprived of the continuous care and attention of a mother or a substitute mother are not only temporarily disturbed by such deprivation, but may in some cases suffer long-term effects which persist into adulthood. Or in other words, Bowlby says, we do as we have been done by. So again, going back to that part, what cannot be communicated to the mother or whatever the parent figure is, right? What cannot be communicated to the mother cannot be communicated to the self. Often in recovery, as I sit with clients, as I've sat with my own therapist, there's truths that start to bubble up. There's realities. We talked about that a couple of episodes ago. There's realities that start to come to our awareness that we couldn't be aware of before, that we couldn't communicate because it wasn't something that our primary caregivers were aware of or responding to or protecting us from. We do know that children who have, you know, who begin their life with the essential foundation of secure attachment fare better in all aspects of functioning as they develop. We have numerous longitudinal studies that have demonstrated that securely attached infants and toddlers do better over time in the following areas. Self-esteem, independence, resilience in the face of adversity, ability to manage impulses and feelings, long-term friendships, relationships with parents, caregivers, and other authority figures, pro-social coping skills, trust, 
intimacy, and affection. A positive and hopeful belief system about themselves, family, and society. Empathy, compassion, and conscience. Behavioral and academic success in school. They also promote secure attachment with adult partners and with their own children when they become adults. There are some therapists who are writing, some people, some therapists just are talking with other people, other therapists, other professionals who are wondering and pondering on the role that attachment plays and trauma plays in all of the mental health diagnoses that we see and work with in our offices and in our sessions. Now, the good news, if you're listening and you did not have that beginning to your life with the essential foundation of secure attachment, like I didn't, and like many of the clients that I work with didn't, the good news is we can work backwards. We can start where we are today and we can start to meet the needs that we didn't get, but we needed. Sometimes I often will say to clients, sometimes there was only a certain window when that need was going to get met. And the work we have to do going forward is grief work because there's never going to be another window or time period where it's age appropriate to get those needs met. So for example, it's totally appropriate when we're infants and when we're toddlers to demand that another person put our needs above their own, focus on us more than they focus on themselves. And yet at, that, at those young ages, that is appropriate. It is appropriate to make those demands on the relationships we're a part of when we're an infant and when we're a toddler. But there's never really another time period where it's age appropriate to say to somebody, hey, I'd like to be in a relationship with you. And what I need from you is to put my needs above your own, to answer whenever I call, to put your life on hold so that you can ensure that I develop a healthy foundation in this relationship. Like it's, it's never age appropriate again. And so we're going to have to grieve what is never going to happen to us. And as we move through the stages of grief and accept the loss, and we start to move into an acceptance, we can start meeting those needs. We can reparent ourselves and begin to move forward so that we can start where we are and give to ourselves and be that parent that our younger self needed. Now, I've also talked on this podcast before about Pia Melody's work in her book and in her theory, Facing Codependence. And in that book, she talks about the traits of functional adults. So trait number one, there's five traits of a functional adult. Trait number one, or characteristic number one, is experiencing appropriate levels of self-esteem. Healthy self-esteem is the internal experience of one's own preciousness and value as a person. Or what I often say is self-esteem is a knowing and loving who you are. It comes from inside a person and it moves outward into our relationships. Healthy people know that they're valuable and precious even when they make a mistake 
or are confronted by an angry person or cheated or lied to or are rejected by a lover, a friend, parent, child, or boss. The sense of worth can be felt even when we got a bad haircut or we're overweight if we experience bankruptcy or lose a tennis game or realize that we've been insulted or talked about behind our back. Now, healthy individuals may feel other emotions such as guilt or fear, anger, betrayal, pain in these circumstances, but the sense of self-esteem or inherent worth remains intact. Pia talks about that if we don't have this self-esteem that comes internally, then we end up having, she calls it other esteem, that is based on external things that include some of the following. How you look, how much money you make, who you know, what kind of car you drive, what kind of job you have, how well your children perform, how powerful and important or attractive your spouse is, the degrees that you've earned, how you perform at activities in which others value excellence. Pia says the problem is that the source of other esteem is outside the self and so it's vulnerable to changes beyond your own control. And you can lose this exterior source of esteem at any time by anybody else's decisions. The second trait of a functional adult is setting functional boundaries. So basically, whenever we don't have good boundaries, we can't really tell where our reality stops and someone else's reality begins. I start to blend with the other person and I think I can tell that person how to think, how to feel and behave because I see them as simply an extension of myself. Now, this can be very irritating and insulting to the other person. On the other hand, I may think I can read the other person's thoughts and feelings and I choose my behavior based on my perception of their opinion of me or what they want or need from me. And then I'm starting to enter into this codependent relationship where they control me. Now, many people who have had attachment wounds may think that their feelings are dramatic or overreactions. Or maybe when they freeze in those emotions, that that's just the way they are. And so they look for techniques or social skills to help them overcome those personality quirks. But I believe that looking at our histories, our stories, identifying the specific incidents about which we had our original overwhelming feelings, and finding a way to own and release those feelings can bring freedom from the sabotaging cycle that makes our lives so unmanageable and painful. The third trait of functional adults is owning and expressing their reality. So the fact that our emotions are generated from our thoughts also influences our damaged and exaggerated feeling reality. So this process of generating feelings from the way we interpret the events around us automatically can lead to problems because the experience of being abused will damage our thinking. The process of assigning meaning to the events in our lives is skewed and the conclusions we often draw are inaccurate, but we don't know that. We believe that our thinking is true or it's fine or it's how it is. But in fact, our emotional responses to other people's actions towards us 
often don't make sense to other people. Pia says, I seldom realize that because of my childhood abuse, I tend to put a negative interpretation on incoming data when a positive interpretation might be far more accurate. So again, owning and expressing your reality, you're able to hold your opinion. Maybe somebody else's opinion is different from yours. That's okay. I don't have to fight with you. I don't have to just have one prevailing reality that gets to rule. I get to own and express my reality. I also get to be comfortable with another person owning and expressing their reality. And I can meet them somewhere in the middle. I can listen. I can hear them. I can understand them. And I can also express and expect to be heard and listened to and validated. The fourth trait of functional adults is taking care of our adult needs and wants. So again, this is when I was talking about that there's just some areas that we may have to grieve that like, I'm never going to get what I needed at that particular age because there's never a time that I get to act that particular age. The need for emotional nurturing is the need all children have for time and attention from other people that are important in their life that lets them know that they matter, that they feel heard and seen. This need also includes information, two different kinds of information. First, about who they are, and second, about how to do things. And that could be how to do anything, right? How to make friends, how to put together outfits, how to be hygienic and take care of yourself and be clean, what it means to be a male or a female in healthy, positive regard, what it means to be a good friend, what it means to be thoughtful, what it means to have empathy and to think about another person. Children who receive enough emotional nurturing will develop a sense of who they are, an inner sense of this identity. And it goes back to the first one that there's inherent worth just by being, not from having to do anything, but also by being. And this comes about in two ways. First, children become who the parent tells them they are by the parent's words and actions toward the child. Second, children also get a sense of identity by observing and noticing the parent and by the parent telling the children who the parent is. So again, often we may have what Pia calls carried shame or inherited shame, that as I'm watching my parent and their interactions with other people, with people in my family, with myself, that I feel their shame, that maybe they're not feeling, but I feel that shame and I internalize that and it tells me something about who I am or I think it tells me something about who I am based on what I see my parents doing. Often children who were attacked for making mistakes become perfectionist adults who are also somewhat controlling or they just don't try. These might be under earners. They may be people who take the easy route in order to know that they can be successful and not make mistakes. On the other hand, children who did not have to be accountable for the mistakes they made and who gave up trying to be perfect and resisted their parents' demands could also become rebellious adults and exhibit little and sometimes no control over themselves. Pia says, adults who were raised as perfectionists or spoiled rebels have difficulty owning and expressing their own reality and imperfection. These adults are not able to know themselves realistically 
as normally imperfect human beings without great fear, pain, or anger attached to that knowledge. So it becomes difficult to acknowledge what we think, feel, did, or look like because the emotional reaction to any imperfection is so painful. And then the fifth trait of a functional adult is experiencing and expressing our reality moderately or within boundaries or balanced. She says not knowing how to be moderate is possibly the most visible symptom of childhood trauma to other people. She also says trying to deal with a person who is always acting at one extreme or another is very difficult for those attempting to relate to this person or live in the same household as this person. In other words, sometimes with trauma, we just don't understand what moderation is. These people are either totally involved or totally detached, totally happy or absolutely miserable. They believe that a moderate response to a situation isn't enough. Only too much is enough. So thinking may look pretty black and white. There's right, wrong, there's good, bad. There's very few gray areas. They also have trouble seeing options in life because in their brain, there's only one right answer that they have to find. And in relationships, they operate from the belief that if you don't agree with me 100%, you're not with me. The feelings will look like a lot of difficulty knowing just what their feelings are. They have very little emotional intelligence and they don't know how to express what they do feel. They often have the most difficulty expressing these feelings moderately. So they feel little to no emotions or when the emotions come on board, they feel them extreme and they can be explosive or overwhelming to where they shut down. Now you may be wondering, that maybe that was an interesting history lesson. We talked about John Bowlby. We talked about Mary Ainsworth. We talked about Eric Erickson. Now we got into Pia Melody. I'm hoping you start to see the connection to this principle of openness. I used to think before I was a parent, and maybe even when I was a new parent, I used to just be so afraid of what could go wrong. And there seemed to me to be so many things that could go wrong. And there are things that can go wrong, but I think I was overly focused on what could go wrong and that somewhat overwhelmed me as a new parent or even before I even had kids. Thinking about having kids was a really overwhelming idea to me. And yet one of the things that I think being a therapist has taught me that also being a mother has taught me is if you do a few things right, it makes a world of difference. I'm constantly amazed, whether it's with my kids or whether it's with clients, that when I I don't give them the answer, I don't tell them what they have to do, but we create a safe space where they can open up some of their insecurities. They can open up some of their wounds. They can start to talk about and wonder and look at and feel what happened to them. And they can do that knowing that it's safe and that they're not going to be judged or criticized or questioned. And what I find so often is when we can open up that space and when I hold a belief in them that you'll figure this out and that you know the answer, the answer's in you, it's not in me. I can have these conversations with you. I can ask you some questions. Sometimes I answer, ask them really good questions, but I can be here in this space with you 
But the goal of this space is for you, whether that's my client, whether that's my child, you to find your answer. So there's an opening to themselves that can happen in that safe space. I think that recovery, what I've learned is that recovery involves reviewing our past to identify formative experiences early in life that were less than nurturing, maybe traumatic. We have to get our history straight and we have to face that existence in our life. However, in recovery, all of this changes, whether it's going to meetings where you begin to feel a sense of belonging or a therapy group that you're able to be honest, understood and connected. And then as recovery deepens and you move from individual work, you know, into that group work, the work of bonding with other people begins. The deep hunger for being part of a group, a clan, a tribe, or a family begins to be fulfilled. We start to see that we do deserve a place in the world and that we are welcome in it. And that yes, while the world can be an unsafe place, the world can also be a beautiful place and a safe place. We can start to feel secure and even confident in taking up our space, in allowing ourselves to be seen and seeing others. When we have people we can trust and we have a group where we belong, then we can start to open. We open our minds to new ideas, new ways of seeing the world and ourselves in the world. We open our hearts to empathy, compassion, and love. If you're working a 12-step program in step five, we open our lockbox of secrets and wrongdoings and we tell them to someone we trust. This person listens to us. They care about us. It's basic bonding that begins to happen. But adult with adult instead of adult with child. Karn says, something else essential happens in this process. In opening to this person and admitting the exact nature of our wrongs, we make ourselves vulnerable. Our witness learns all about the mistakes we've made, the harm we've caused, and the values and vows we've broken. Yet the listener doesn't disrespect us or criticize us or go away upon knowing about our flaws and wrongdoings. Instead, they accept us. Our disclosure doesn't end the relationship. It deepens it. This encounter sends our brain the same message as that silent parent-child gaze. It tells us, you are redeemable. You do deserve a place on this planet. You belong here. It's the beginning of our release from feelings of unworthiness and shame. And day by day, we open, we bond, and we heal. I think it's because of this relearning or this corrective emotional experience about how to bond that many people in recovery groups form lifelong friendships. Over time, we learn to take this ability to bond that we learned in therapy, in groups, out into the world with us, into the relationships that we choose to be a part of. And we begin to discover that every honest, authentic conversation with another human being, every shared opening is an opportunity for bonding. It's an opportunity 
for beauty, and it's an opportunity for connection. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until you're finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.